Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. So we're in the library section, and the next library in order is libedit. That's the first one in the E section of, of the libraries. And, and I'm going to try to really get through a bunch again, just like in the previous episode, because I'm, I'm really trying to get through this library section. It is, it is um, tough. So libedit is a, um, a, a library from NetBSD that provides command line editing capabilities and functions similar to what GNU readline provides. That's kind of how it's described, like GNU readline. Of course, the problem with describing something by comparing it to something else is that you have to be familiar with that something else in order for for, for that to mean anything for you. Foo, it's like bar. Well, what's bar? If you don't know what bar is, you don't know what foo is. So um, you can read all about GNU readline by doing man space three space readline, and you get uh, a lot of information about readline from that. You could also just do info readline, which gives you even more information, lots of great information, and I think a very natural kind of easy way of um, of of reading it. It's it's much more like a, a manual. I've I've really I've gotten it's neither here nor there, but I have really gotten fond of info pages lately. I just find them so darned easy to use. They're so well written. I mean, not universally well written, but I mean, a lot of them are really well written. They're written, as I say, more like a an article or a book rather than just a, a dump of of options without really any context. So info pages, I, I have started almost defaulting to them. Not always. I mean, there, there are some times where I don't, I don't bother because maybe I know the command really, really well already. And really all I need is that quick reminder. And that's when the man page comes in handy sometimes, or just the dash dash help. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. As I said, lib edit, it is like GNU readline. If you don't know what GNU readline is, and you can't be bothered to read the documentation, which there's a lot of it, so I wouldn't blame you. Um, the the way to describe it is 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 simply like when you're using a terminal, the fact that you can, for instance, I don't know, hit delete to remove a character behind you, like not delete. What's this? Backspace. Backspace. Uh, the fact that you could type something. Uh, let's do like I don't know. Find dot dash type f uh, dash i name. Oh wait, I wanted to. I misspelled find. I, I want to go back to the, the beginning of the line. Well, how do you do that? How do you get back to the beginning of a line in a terminal? It's not like a text editor. You can't just click and be there, right? Well, Control A sends you to the back to the start of your of your command, and then you can either hit the delete key, the forward delete key, or the Control D to delete and and erase what you have, find, uh, and, and, and spell it correctly. Or maybe, let's say you had typed um, F-N-I-D instead of find, F-F-N-I-D. So you could go uh, control F-F to the I position, and then hit control T to swap the I with its preceding character, thereby um, swapping the I and the N, and now you're left with find. Control E gets you to the end of the line. All of that stuff, if that's news to you, that's really um, maybe 
intermediate to advanced Emacs key bindings, all of those are provided to you through GNU Readline. The fact that you can do that kind of editing of a command, well, that you can edit a command, that you don't have to just cancel out, control C, start typing again at the beginning of the line, that's provided by, in this case, GNU Readline. Now, libedit provides similar functionality. Um, I don't know what off the top of my head uses libedit instead of GNU Readline. I would have to do LDD on a bunch of applications to find one. Um, I guess we could do like, let's, let's just really quick try TCSH. Where's my TCSH? TCSH. Did I not, do I not have TCSH installed? Yes, of course I do. I just don't know where it is. Okay, which TCSH? Oh, it's in bin. I probably should have known that. Okay, TCSH, LDD, no, that doesn't use libedit either. So I don't know what uses libedit. Don't know. But it's a library, and if you want to write something with, like, a terminal emulator or something with that, with, with editing functionality, you could use libedit. Libevent is next, and it is a, we might be through the E section now, uh, and it's, it's an event, um, well, it's an API providing event, um, a callback function, so that when a specific event occurs on a file descriptor, uh, then, then something else can happen. And, and that's an important feature if you need to be notified that your command has, has, has been completed, or, well, that's the only example I can think of, really. Well, no, that's not, like, and if, or if you want something to happen, like a, something, something occurs on a file descriptor, or there's a timeout on a, an operation, you know, some operation, then maybe you want to, you need to detect that so that your, your application can then, um, do, move on to the next stage. So, like in programming, a lot of times, I mean, very frequently in programming, your 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 code is just sitting there waiting for something to happen. If you think about like a GUI application, in fact, that's practically all it does. I mean, the fact that a window stays open after you launch an application, that's that's because it's just waiting for events to happen. I've just opened up a text editor, and it's just sit, 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 sitting there. It's not. It's not going to close itself. It is listening for an event that might signal it to close, but it's also listening for an event that tells it that I want to type some stuff in, or that I want to save my work, or that I want to close that tab and discard, and then file quit. So those are all events, and libevent is a, a, a file or a rather an event notification library. It can shuttle the a notification about an event, like a signal around. In fact, that's what Qt, for instance, it doesn't, I don't think it uses libevent, but Qt, um, as far as I know, it does not use libevent. Qt has a whole system called signals and slots, and it is, that's the whole, the, the whole infrastructure of that is just, you know, like the, the feature there is that, yes, you can listen for an event, and when an event happens, whether it happens now, or 30 seconds from now, or four hours from now, when it happens, you can, you can trigger something else to happen. Very important in principle. Libevent is a library that provides that. Libexif 
E-X-I-F. I think we've kind of talked about this, right? Um, this is the, in- the the exchangeable image file format library. There are that there is the ability to put metadata into files, and in graphic files, the uh, the metadata st- uh, system subsystem is called EXIF, uh, exchangeable image file format. And this is a library that, just like um, so many other libraries, it's I- I'm trying to think of the one that I was talking about. I think just last week or maybe the week before, but um, I can't remember what it was. Was it async IO or something or no? Um, anyway, libraries. It's useful to have that library because now you you don't have to write the code to look at the certain spot in a file that should have that that could have exif data in it and then you don't have to extract that exif data manually i mean you still do with libexif you have to tell libexif to do it and there's a function for that to okay retrieve the data put it into an array or something i imagine i haven't looked at libexif myself but uh you probably put it into an array and then you can parse that array you say or a dictionary you know whatever uh what what it's called a map um you get that information find out what the key and the values are cycle through that presented to the user or process it yourself maybe you need to see well what's the orientation of this of this of this graphic or what's the lens type of this graphic maybe you want to trigger lens fun to then correct something in an in in a graphic by automatically detecting the lens type as 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 reported by exif um not that i know that exif data actually has that information i think it does certainly would have camera information like camera make and model so i guess if nothing else you could narrow it down okay next up is oh yeah and yes we are indeed out of the e section now so the that that was e we're already through it we're in f now lib fake key this is a virtual keyboard library so if if you are working on a uh, one of those keyboards that pops up on screen that you would then click the keys with your mouse or, or touch screen if you've got touch screen uh, this is a, a library for that this seems to come from something called the matchbox window manager which I'd never heard of before which honestly surprises me I I tend to sort of I don't know like doesn't everyone sort of watch window ma- managers see what's coming, what's going, where everything is? Um, I'd never heard of this before, but it exists. Uh, you can go to github.com slash netplc slash matchbox dash window dash manager. That's netplc, net papa lima charlie, matchbox dash window dash manager. So, um... This is obviously just the lib fake key from this project, uh, apparently. And I don't know sort of the status of Matchbox Window Manager. Certainly they refer to a site, a website called projects.o-band.com slash matchbox. And if you try to go to that website, it does not know, it cannot find that website, the the internet does not know about that. So I don't know. I don't know what Matchbox was or is. Um, you can apparently, you know, build it. I, I may try building it sometime soon and, and just see, I mean, heck, maybe over the coffee break. I don't know. Um, see what sort of what it does. Although you do apparently need lib Matchbox before building. And it doesn't necessarily say where you get lib Matchbox from. Hopefully somewhere 
else in this in this re repository. Not really sure. Um, so anyway, there's um, Matchbox dash keyboard in that. So so actually, the, I guess the better place to go would be GitHub dot dot com slash net plc dash uh, slash Matchbox dash keyboard. That seems to be uh, really what you would want to look at if you were going to use lib uh, uh, key a fake key. Uh, and it's yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It sounds like a. It seems like an interesting project. This does look like it hasn't been touched in a while. I get that weird feeling that maybe this isn't. Maybe this isn't a super um, sort of active project. But I don't know. It it is kind of intriguing. And certainly, if if you wanted to pick up development on, on this, or um, or or you you know you had some related thing where you were just thinking, oh, I really want just a pop up keyboard real quick so I could have my users uh, type in a a pin or something. Then then maybe this would be useful. Who knows? Lib fake key. All right. Next up is lib f. FI. That's the uh, foreign function interface library. So foreign function interface. That's that's an interface that allows code written in one language to call code written in another language. This is very very cool. Something I I I hope one day maybe before I die I will understand this kind of stuff. I mean this stuff is like magic to me. This is so cool. So libffi um, provides a, a really like base or uh, like a they they say that, that I always get this confused. They say it's a high level programming interface, but see I think of that as low level. But anyway, what it what it provides is. The components you need to 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 call to call code from one language into another. So, for instance, C Python. You can write a C function and then call it from Python as if though more or less as if though it was C code. It's a little bit more complex than that. They they, they make it sound so easy. But but libffi makes it sort of easy for the Python developers to make that relatively easy for you the the python developer well the also the c developer um open jdk java that uses libffi to bridge between the interpreter and native code for some some platforms i don't know which the the website doesn't say uh there's uh java native access jna that's that uses lib FFI. Ruby FFI uses FFI uh, for Ruby, and there's something um, related like Ruby Cocoa. I mean, I don't know how related that is, but it also uses lib FFI apparently to uh, be able to call Objective C code from your Ruby project, and on and on. A bunch of a bunch of different ones. A Racket, that's a, a Lisp, um, or no, it's sorry, it's not Lisp. It's Scheme, and you can call C code from from within there. Even uh, GCJ, which is the GNU compiler for Java, uh, uses libffi to handle calls back and forth between the interpreted part of uh, Java and the compiled part of a Java project. Oh my gosh, we are we're through the F section now. We're in the G's. This is great. This is really this is progress. Okay, libglade is the next one. Libglade is it, it doesn't actually sort of exactly refer to Glade, the IDE, the GNOME desktop IDE or GTK slash GNOME IDE. It it it's really talking about the ability that certainly Glade provides, that the IDE provides, um, the ability to create user interfaces for applications in a in a way that your 
your interface and your code, like the application, I guess the, what do they call it? The business code or whatever they call it. Uh, what do they call that? Business programming? Business? I don't know. Wh- whatever. The, 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 the stuff that your application actually does. You can, you can build your, the application code and the interface itself separately which could be a big deal because it could mean, for instance, well, it certainly means that you're not fiddling around with like window layout and, and where a field is going to go, you know, in, in the in the file where you're also doing, I don't know, complex uh, matrix transforms or something. It, it separates essentially sort of content from style, which is really, really important for a lot of different reasons. Well, I mean, one is because you could have, in theory, someone working on the design of the application while someone else works on the on the code, and they're not working, like, they're not trying to struggle with, like, the same file and so on. So that's, that's a great thing. Um, you could have just you know, it could just be cleaner for the programmer as well you know like it can get pretty distracting to have like all your silly laborious design work in the same place as like the real stuff that the application does so and i think the design of the interface is it is shockingly uh tedious in in reality like it, it it takes a lot of work to do that and a lot of revisions too because you think you think you know what would what makes sense and then you build it and you look at it and you think oh that that doesn't actually make sense it need that that button should be over here that field shouldn't even show up yet you know all these other revisions and you're going into your to the main part of your code to, to copy and paste lines and, and cut and paste and it's just it gets it can get messy and confusing and a little bit noisy. So libglade helps you separate those two two things out. And then when you compile your code, you 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 use libglade to uh, sort of connect the application code to the interface code which is written generally in XML XML. Now, I I personally I just keep thinking like surely everything could actually just use HTML and CSS because in my mind HTML and CSS is just it's a beautiful beautiful thing for uh structuring dynamic uh interfaces. Like it that it's, I feel like it's tried true and true and and tested, you know? Like I mean that w- w- people are doing that like every day on the internet and people are consuming these interfaces on all kinds of different devices. Like if you want something that's been stress tested, I feel like HTML and CSS have been pretty well stress tested. Like if you want dynamic interfaces, I feel like that's kind of where to look. Um, I know Qt does have some ability to sort of provide a CSS uh, override for some of its interface components. I don't know what GTK slash GNOME does for that, although I do know there's a really cool thing where with GTK, you can launch an interface, I think, in a web browser. I forget how you do this, but it's probably due to, like, updates to libglade. I don't know if this version, this is uh, for version 2.4 or something. Let me... The documentation's really good, and that's in user share gtk doc slash html slash libglade slash index.html. This is for libglade 2.6.4, so I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining this as progressed in recent in very recent years quite a lot um but there are some really good examples of of how this works 
and uh, it's uh, it, it tells it talks about Glade XML and what you can what what functions you can call from that and what what widget functions you have available. It's a pretty cool system. Uh, and Glade, the IDE, from what I understand, I, have, I don't really use it myself. Um, makes it sort of easy to uh, to interface with well to interface to to use that system in in your code. So I guess take a look at it if you're doing GTK development. I don't know that Slackware is the best platform for GTK development. Probably something like Fedora or, I don't know, whatever else is out there that's kind of bleeding edge might be the thing to do that on. I mean, bleeding edge and very GTK-centric. All right, next up is libgnome-keyring. That's the Gnome Keyring Library. This is um, this is your your uh, authentication and uh, any kind of user secrets that Gnome needs to to authenticate your you you quickly into various systems. That and that on the Gnome Desktop, for instance, that might include something like um, connecting your uh, your your online accounts with your desktop. And I, I do. I have to do that at work. I have to connect a couple of different online accounts, or I don't have to, but I'm able to, uh, to the GNOME Desktop. And then you just get you get things for free, and it you don't you have as far as you can recall, you haven't even signed in. It just it just magically happens. So um, that's that that kind of thing is 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 possible because of the GNOME keyring. This is the library to access to access that keyring as a developer. So in other words, this is a lot like k what is it k wallet kde wallet whatever we call it now um that but again this is the library for developers to interface with that let's talk about libgnt this is the glib incurses toolkit incurses is a really fun way of building really really basic user interfaces so if you've ever used sbo pkg the Slack build installer, uh, originally written by Chess Griffin, and I think maintained now by the slackbuild.org team. If you've ever used that, then hey, you've experienced incurses. The, the the well, if you've ever used it in its interactive mode, if you've ever used like Package Tool or the Slackware installer, then you've experienced incurses. So it it just draws big blocks of pixels on your screen to mimic, you know, essentially like an 8-bit computer system. Like it's just really sort of raw pixels on in in a frame buffer and and it uses that the the cool thing is that it has constructs it has little objects already defined in the library so that you as a developer you could say okay i want there to be a quote unquote uh, quote unquote button and and it it will create like what sort of looks like a button out of sort of pixel art almost. I mean, it's it's even less than, it's just a big block, you know, just a, a colored block with the word okay or cancel in it. And the user can arrow from one or the other and, and press return. And, and th- that triggers some action. Or they can scroll through a menu and the next menu highlights and then the next menu item highlights and then the next one, they can click a button or a, rather they can press a key and they're clicking that that menu item and then it goes to the next screen or whatever and i you know you, you can you can you can use that for a lot of different you can draw interface uh, conventions like windows and buttons but you can also you know use it just just 
as a library to to enable people to use to to, to have an interactive se session with a terminal. And I say interactive as opposed to non-interactive, meaning that usually you just type a command, hit return, and that's the computer does does the thing that you have told it to do. That's not interactive. That there's there has been an interaction. You have you've commanded. The computer has followed the command, but it, it it's not. Uh, it doesn't have that sort of time together that idle time lib incurses or, or incurses rather um kind of kicks it into a, an, an event cycle it, it presents a menu or a window or an interface of some kind and waits for input so lib gnt provides that uh through through um this project which was originally um the finch project which uh, I don't know the all of the 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 relations, but Finch was somehow related to Pigeon or adjacent to Pigeon, or or maybe it's the other way around, uh, and and then from that general project there was Lib Purple, which was the the very back end for chat applications. You want to write a chat application and be able to parse, you know, in in ingest and and send all kinds of different all, all kinds of different um chat protocols like jabber and um that's the only one i can remember right now jabber jabber i'm sure there are other chat protocols these days there must be some but like all that stuff lib purple may be able to to do that for you so um all of those things uh are sort of wrapped up together finch and lib purple i guess they must have written probably a terminal based front end which again this that kind of thing is po po is possible because of this modular these modular libraries you can you can have an application that the 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 actual workhorse portion of your application can be running in code over here your interface can be joined up to it separately you they don't have to be locked together so you've got lib purple that can just input and output all kinds of chat protocols and then you you grab glib incurses toolkit lib gnt and write up a quick uh, interface for maybe not quick but you write up an interface for this chat application and now suddenly you've got a chat application with the power of um uh, wechat or xchat or whatever else is out there these days um and and then but it's running in a terminal and it's an interactive uh interactive session so your 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 user doesn't have to like keep typing in programs um until uh, until they get a new message you know like it's it's just there it's 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 running in their terminal interactively and that's uh that's why this modularity is so powerful you know you got all these libraries doing all these different jobs and you tether them together and yeah you, you you know a lot of times it's not so modular that you just point at something and it and it it launches you, you do have to compile things so that they know that the other thing exists and so on but that is it that's the modular dream right there is that that you can have those separate components okay maybe it's not the modular dream but it's it's a, a great start to to true modularity you have all these different components you tie them together yes at compile time but they, they during development they are separate that they, they can be developed separately they can be done by different teams or they just help you focus on what you're what you actually have to do keep your 
code cleaner, um, and then you tie them together at compile time, and suddenly you have some project that has a lot more power than it sort of deserves to have in a way. So anyway, that's libgnt, I guess. It's probably time for coffee, so let's go get some, and then we'll come back and talk about libgphoto2. <laughs> And I'm back with coffee. The coffee's getting a little bit better. The deeper down this container I get, the uh, the better and better the coffee becomes. Um, I don't know if I'm just acclimating to it and I just feel like it's fine now, or whether I am actually working my way through the different layers of the different coffee roasts that I ended up with. I'm not, not sure which it is. Um, once it gets about halfway down, I think I might just shake up the container to try to distribute all the flavor evenly through the container and hopefully have some halfway decent cups of coffee for the next uh, couple of weeks. But we'll see. And I, of course, will keep you updated on that situation. But for now, I think we have a couple of rapid-fire libraries that we can just kind of power through. The first one is is simple enough. It's libgphoto2. We've talked about gphoto2. It was back in episode 3... 57. So that's what, 100 and, uh, I don't know, 200 episodes ago? Less than 200, but but nearly 200 episodes ago? That's that's really weird to think about, actually. This is, what, 536? That was 357, so, like, what's that, like, around 180? Something like that? Wow, that's really crazy. So anyway, yeah, 180 episodes ago, just 180 episodes I guess, functionally, hours ago, well, not hours, uh, 180 hours of content ago, we talked about gphoto2. There you go. So that's, um, it's a, gphoto itself is a, a command, or gphoto2, whatever, um, is a command that allows you to query a digital camera that's attached to your computer, or a, a digital imaging device attached to your computer. You can find out what what photographs it has on, on its internal storage. You can you can acquire those photographs over the MTP protocol and so on. LibGphoto2 is the library that does all of those things. And so if you look at the header files in user include gphoto or something like that, then you see all the header files uh, all uh, a huge list of all the camera manufacturers, and then if you go into the header files or into the documentation, you can look th- at that in like Firefox. It's in uh, again user doc uh, gphoto dash doc or something like that, and you can review it. You can look through it. I, I looked through it all, and it's it's got function names and 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 things in there that that make sense. You know, like list capabilities, um, JPEG parsing, all the things that you would expect, I guess, a digital imaging interface to provide. So if you were going to write your own application that needed access to a camera, you might use libgphoto. Like if you were to do like uh, a security camera type software where you wanted to be able to take a picture every couple of... Actually, does gphoto do that? Maybe not. Uh, If you wanted to 
um, write an application to, I guess, drag photos off of the camera, you could do that. Now, of course, these days, it's not just cameras that have images on them. So the G libgphoto2 provides for uh, photos, but also for music, uh, audio files. And there's a, there's a, a function to determine whether it's a, an imaging device or an audio playback device. So it can tell the difference. Um, and that's important because most everyone nowadays has a device that does both. It can play audio, it can do images, that the, the combination of that sort of interface makes sense. Now, there is a similar library, lib gpod, and that's the next in the list. Oh, I just realized I skipped lib gnt. Okay, well, hold on. So lib gpod, formerly of the GTK pod application, which as memory serves, was a pleasantly minimalist or simplistic application where you would plug in your iPod at the time or, or similar device and GTK pod could detect it and synchronize the little database that the iPods used to do. It was a horrible, horrible interface or a, a horrible way to access the device. I mean, there, there was no good way to interact with a an, an Apple branded iPod. It was always a miserable experience and the the people behind these projects like libgpod and even libphoto, I mean they're just they were doing such a service to humanity by by doing all of that work, decoding all of the the the, the weird ways the iPod had to keep track of all of the files on it. I, I shouldn't say had to, chose to. And and anyway, you could you could add and remove music from an iPod through GTK Pod. Well, at one point it became clear to them that it just made sense not to have again, we're talking about modularity here, not to have that UI and and the functions of just discovering and interacting with an iPod. Why did those share the same code base. So they broke it out and they made libgpod. Today, I don't know how useful libgpod is. It may yet be useful. I don't know. I don't know if like modern iPhones are, I don't think that they are, that they use libgpod. So I think that's lib i phone, I think. Um, so I, I don't think gpod is useful that way. But I mean, if you are someone who still has an iPod, then this could be useful. And I think that's the important thing to realize here is that this this is open source software. And in in this world, you you can have an iPod from 2000 and I don't know, whenever they came out, like 2002, 2003, whatever, and and it will still work on, on, on your Linux computer through open source software. Now, the same may be true. I, I don't know. You, you may have an iPod from 2003, and you might be able to plug it into a, a Windows or a Mac machine, and maybe it works just as well. I, I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't, tried, I haven't talked to anyone within in that situation, but at least there's the assurance that here in the open source world that will continue to work really for as long as someone continues to maintain or, or yeah, I mean, maintain libgpod or libgphoto too, and, and bundle it into, or make it available to uh, your Linux distribution. That's huge. I think that's a really big deal because, I mean, you talk about sort of the, the problems of rampant consumerism and just kind of disposable uh, culture, and it, it just kind of warms the heart to know that open source software at least 
makes it possible for people to reasonably not just toss out that device that they have. I mean, and it, it's a little bit uh, weird, I guess, because, I mean, if you do have a mobile phone, like, do you really need that iPod device anymore, that media player? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I know people who use the media players. I was using it, I was using media players until, um, uh, I guess maybe the pandemic. Or no, maybe since moving to Lawrence, actually, because now I'm I'm just kind of, I work from home, I'm, I'm home a lot. It just kind of makes sense to just play media off of computers or off of a mobile phone. And, and the, the media player, the portability of that became less important. But I was using a media player up until, you know, relatively recently, I guess. And and I, I would go back to one if, if the need ar- arose. Okay, let's talk about LibGNT. I have to refresh my memory about what this is real quick. LibGNT. Oh, yeah, that's uh, we did talk about that. Okay, uh, that was the uh, GLib in curses. Um, so next up is LibGSF, and this is the... Oh, I just tried to download it instead of read the description. Uh, LibGSF is the uh, structured file in-and-out library. So LibGSF provides uh, in-out uh, IO abstraction for dealing with, quote, and this is straight off their website, quote, different structured file formats. Uh, I don't really ever know what that means when people say things like that. But I mean, I guess by different, they mean various. And by various, they mean dot doc and dot x, x, s, l. Is that what whatever Excel spreadsheets are? XLS? Yeah, probably Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, XLS. Um, so libgsf can extract data from uh from common office formats and I, and from what i can tell it's used primarily by uh, gnumeric which is a open source spreadsheet application a little bit like uh, abby word i guess if abby word is even still around i mean i know technically it's still around i i haven't really kept up with its um actual development like how well is it like really does it work still or or no i don't even know haven't really tried it lately so useful abby word but i i do kind of feel i do kind of wonder whether whether it's something that people are using these days yeah i can't tell from its sourceforge page how how active it is right now i mean it says last update was 2013 but, I mean, it could just be somewhere else. I don't know. Um, anyway, point is, Abbey Word and Gnumeric, they were kind of the lightweight versions of sort of LibreOffice, really. So you had Abbey Word as a, a, a pleasantly simplistic word processor, and Gnumeric as, uh, I think, a fairly robust, but still, you know, pretty lightweight. And by lightweight, I mean it was using, you know, it was programmed in probably C, and using GTK libraries for its front end, so it feels very native, whereas, of course, LibreOffice is just, it's, it's Java and probably, I don't know, C and stuff, you know, just a bunch of, it's it's got a bunch of additional things uh, sort of baked into it, and so it, it doesn't feel quite as snappy, there's a lot of different components, it's a big, it's a big project. Numeric was just a spreadsheet. Abbey Word is just a word processor. And so it was often seen as kind of like the quote-unquote lightweight alternative to a full-on office suite. LibGSF was used by Gnumeric to import data that someone might have 
uh, embedded, as it were, in um, the uh, you know some other Office format. I mean, really, a Microsoft Office format. So you've got Excel data uh, and Doc documents. Uh, and I saw in one of their comments uh, on their repository that they're also trying to um, extract sort of table data from like PowerPoint presentations and stuff. So they really want to be able to just like get that data, parse it into something interchangeable, and then and then enable some application to to uh, use that. Now there is also, in addition to the library itself, a command, gsf. So that is if you do a man gsf, or is it, yeah, G man gsf, uh, you can look at that that command, and that is one of the three binaries that ships with this library. So there's GSF, there's GSF-Office Thumbnailer, and then GSF-VBA-Dump. VBA being the, I think, Visual Basic something or another, which I know nothing about, so I, I can't even begin to comment really on it. I know it's a big deal for like Office, Microsoft Office stuff, because like, I think that's, as I, as I understand it, that's how they do all of their scripting and stuff. So I, I guess I guess that's quite quite important, especially for really, really interactive spreadsheets. I think being able to understand what someone's trying to do in VBA and then, you know, I don't know, potentially re-implementing it in some kind of open source scripting uh, functionality within a spreadsheet would be pretty pretty nice. Um, so the GSF command is a simple archive utility similar to tar. It operates on files following one of the structured file formats understood by the G structured file library. That is GSF library, lib GSF. For example, Microsoft Excel files. So you can kind of see some of it. I mean, I, I've never used this tool before, but you can kind of see some of the functionality if you just go to like LibreOffice or something where you can create an Excel file in. Uh, go to like, uh, I'll just open up an existing spreadsheet. Here's an ODS file. So that's the LibreOffice format. But then I'll go to file. I'll save it as uh, an XLS file instead click save. It warns you that you're about to use a Microsoft format and whether you asks whether you'd rather use the LibreOffice format, but um, in this case I actually want to use the Excel format. And so now I've got an Excel file. Now I happen to know that this this spreadsheet has one uh, sheet, like one tab, that, you know, how in a spreadsheet you can have like lots of different sort of tables or spreadsheets, whatever they're called, like tabs. Uh, this one only has one. So I'm going to do a GSF list and then example.xls and it, it shows me what I've got. So uh, d0root, I'm assuming that's the directory like the archive itself, and then F-O-L-E, I don't know what that means, F again, comp obj, like computation object maybe, and then here's here's one that looks somewhat familiar, F workbook, F summary information, F document summary information. So that seems like probably what I'm seeing there is the spreadsheet itself, the, the workbook I imagine would be the, um, would be the, the workbook. Now to dump the workbook, you can do a gsf dump workbook, and where, where, are, we, where are we doing that from? Uh, example.xls. And it says it failed to do that. Did I get that mixed up? Yes, I did. I got those two arguments reversed. Okay, there we go. gsf dump 
uh, example.xls and then space workbook with all the correct capitalization. And in this case, it looks like it's just an init cap. So capital W, lowercase o-r-k, b-o-o-k. And there we go. There's the workbook in beautiful, beautiful hex. So it's just, it just dumps it as, as hex code into your terminal. But I mean, it's got the sort of the decoded uh, sort of view of the data over on the right hand column. It's just like um, hex dump. So, or is that what it's called? Hex dump? Yeah, hex dump. Uh, or hex dump dash dash canonical, really, I think. Um, so you can kind of see the data, get a feel for what it is. Um, how useful is this? I don't know. I mean, you know, this is the kind of data. I mean, it's extracted the data. What you do with that is up to you. So that's the GSF command. Um, probably not a great, truly a great demonstration because like I said, I've never actually used it before and I very, very rarely use Excel spreadsheets. Uh, so I use uh, ODS spreadsheets on, on occasion. So I'm going to make a second tab here. So at the bottom of uh, LibreOffice, I'm just going to hit the plus sign next to the, the tab name. That provides a new sheet 2 is what it's called. And I'll just put in foo bar bar baz gnu world order. Okay, so I've got, got some cells with some data in it. And now once again, I'm going to go to save as. I'm going to save this as a X XLS. It's Excel 97 through 2003, apparently. Rename it. I don't know why it doesn't change the, oh, automatic file name extension. That's why. Okay. Replace. Yes. Replace. Yes. Use the Excel format. Close that document. All right. So I'm going to go back to my terminal and do another GSF list example.xls and ooh, boy, I don't see my other workbook, to be honest. I see that the workbook uh, contains more data. So I guess the workbook is always the workbook, even if there are several tabs in it. Uh, but the count, the data count has gone up. Uh, previously, it was 2689 workbook, and then it was 33. Right now, it is 3310 workbook. So if I do and dump again, I should see even more data, and I definitely do. So there you go. Like I say, what you do with that data is up to you. It's it's a library. It's a command. Um, you would know, I guess, if you needed it. Uh, next up is GTOP, or rather libgtop, and that's a library to fetch information about the running system. So it's a lot like... Um, top, just the, the top command, uh, except it is written, it's a library, and, and as, as you might guess from the G prefix, uh, it is written with GNOME in mind, and I think the, the source code is maintained over on the GNOME GitLab uh, uh, website, the instance, and the, the, the point is that it's going to give you top-like information, but it's, it's in formats that you could then integrate into some kind of system monitor, a graphical system monitor. I would imagine that on the GNOME desktop, if, if you were to open up whatever they use for, uh, like as a, a task monitor or a process monitor, whatever they, they use for that, I would, I would, I would imagine I would be shocked if, if it didn't use libgtop. Whether or what what on Slackware uses libgtop, I I don't know. I I'm really not sure. But there it is, lib libgtop. 
Okay, libiCal, it's an open source uh, MPL or LGPL implementation of the IETF's iCalendar calendaring and scheduling protocols. Those are RFC 2445, 2446, 2447. It parses iCal components and provides C, C++, Python, and Java APIs for whatever you need to do. This is huge. Go to github.com slash libiCal to see all of it in, in, in its, in its full, full glory. Um, but I mean, really this, this is kind of huge. Um, this is one of those things that if you want to parse iCal data, which is, is very widely used. I mean, I, I would, I would say it was the default calendaring protocol, which I, I guess is lucky. I mean, we have we have an open source implementation of it. I, I think iCal for me personally, I, I feel like there's a little bit of a, I, I feel like it's problematic because there are so many, there, there are just so many clients out there that do iCal and not all of them are great. And I would say the most popular one isn't that great. So it's the most popular being Google Calendar, or at least that's the one that I come across the most. Um, so I, I just, I don't, I don't find it, I, I find it unpleasant. I do not love the experience of, of iCal. But then again, I don't love the experience of calendaring at all. Uh, scheduling is just not something that I love to do. I, I find it tedious, I find it uh, a little bit stressful. Like I don't like to plan that far ahead, even though you, you really kind of have to when you're an adult. So I don't know. Um, I think it's good that we have the protocol, and I certainly, I certainly appreciate having the ability to create appointments that then other authenticated people can uh, modify and interact with. Like that kind of functionality is granted really important, and and it has changed the way we schedule and coordinate with one another. Is it for the better? I don't know. I still have a hard time coordinating with people. Granted, I'm 12 or 13 hours offset of UTC, which is very drastic, and so uh, that alone becomes complex. Um, but I don't know. Scheduling is just a, a horrible, horrible part of being a human, I guess, in the modern world. It, it, we have to do it. It's something you got to do. I don't enjoy it. iCal, in theory, should make it better, easier, more fun. And in practice, I'm just not convinced that I, I, I don't think it's gotten there. But I don't know the, the, a better answer either. So really, everything I'm saying is, is pointless. Uh, LibiCal does a great job. I mean, it, it's the thing is going to let you uh, interface with, I keep saying interface, but you know, interact with data, with, with iCal data. Do you want to? I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe you do. If you're writing a calendaring application, then I, I guess you would want to do that. Um, I would assume that uh, con uh, Contact is probably using... What's it, can we find out? User... Where, where does Contact live? I don't even know. Which Contact user bin? All right, so if I do it... Uh, an LDD on user bin contact and then do a grep dash I for lib iCal. No, amazingly, it's not apparently using. That doesn't make any sense, but that's what it says. Maybe there's some other component within contact that uses lib iCal. I guess I could do, I could do like a find in user bin type F. There's probably a better thing to search for than 
F, but I can't be bothered to look that up right now. Type F, um, uh, and then we'll do a um, exec grep dash capital H lowercase i. Oh wait, no, we have to do a LDD for curly brace, curly brace, and then pipe. No, wait, that's not going to work either because if I do that, I'll just get, I'm, I'm just grepping standard input, so I will never know what has hit. So I, I need to do this just as a, I guess, a for loop, pretty much. So for i in slash user slash bin slash star semicolon do echo dollar sign i. That way I get the name of the program. There's probably a better way to do that so that I'm only echoing the successes, but whatever. And and, so ampersand ampersand, ldd space dollar sign i. Uh, let's redirect errors to greater than symbol slash dev slash null pipe grep dash lowercase i. I don't need the h because I'm echoing. lib i cal. I guess, could I, could I put the echo there so that if I get a, if I get a hit I echo? Let's do that, maybe. I don't know if that'll work. Um, do echo, so ampersand, ampersand there instead. Echo dot dollar sign i, semicolon done. And oh, that did work. That worked very well. Okay, so, um, there's, okay, it wasn't contact, it was akinadi. Akinadi underscore archive mail agent, lib iCal. Akinadi birthdays resource, lib iCal. iCal. Akinadi console, lib iCal. It's all over Akinadi. Akinadi, Akinadi. Uh, calendar janitor, I, I think I remember seeing that in contact, I think. Is that right? Um, oh, there's more. There's uh, itinerary, k-alarm, k-mail, console calendar. Forgot about that one. K-time tracker, inbox importer. Yeah, so the, the KDE personal information suite uh, definitely uses this library. Now we know. And that's a good command to keep in mind. I should be doing that for all the libraries. Let's go back to the beginning, and I'll do that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, lib id3 tag. Well, we've talked about id3 and metadata in, in several other places. Things like uh, talking about KID3, I think. Yeah, for sure, in the KDE. Um, I think we've talked about easy tag. I think we've just talked about IDV2, or uh, rather ID3V2, the command. So yeah, it's metadata. It's for the ID3 tags specifically are are for um, are for MP3s, um, maybe MP4s as well, but not interestingly, not really for AUG. AUG uses its own metadata style, if I recall correctly. Um, no, for sure it does, yeah. Uh, it, so it implements it differently, for instance. Now, a lot of the taggers that you, you see on Linux can also do AUG, and they don't necessarily differentiate, like, hey, this isn't an ID3 tag anymore, uh, which I think arguably is a good thing. I, I, I kind of don't care, although I guess also I do care because I, you know, like, if, the, if all the tags that you're tagging look like ID3 to you as the user, then if you try to use the ID3 command on them, then something might not work. But in either way, um, that's ID3. What am I doing? Lib ID3 tag, right? Uh, so I'm just doing an LDD <laughs> really quick. Um, lib ID3 tag. So the thing that uses this actually is easy tag. 
And EasyTag is a great application. I use it a lot. Uh, or, well, I was using it a lot for a while when I was tagging a bunch of stuff. Um, it just kind of, I don't know, it, it just was kind of working for me. Every, the layout was working for me well. There's also, it looks like Mad Play uses this. Play uses this. Play is from the Socks um, package. Rec from Socks. I think Play and Rec. Yeah, that's from Socks, I think. And, and Socks itself. So, and Socks I all use libid3 tag to, um, to detect metadata in mp3 files and whatever else uses id3 and then they're able to report it back to you. libidl is the interface definition language library which is used within corba, c-o-r-b-a, and it's used by uh, CMonkey and the Mozilla Suite. Well, CMonkey itself is the w w what they they call what they are developing, and it's an active project. You can go to CMonkey-Project.org and and they've got news from like September 20, 2023. So like you know it's it's still happening. What is it? It's a a community effort to develop the CMonkey Internet Application Suite, and that's what they're calling it. And, and what that is, is what Netscape used to be, and, and later Mozilla used to be. And that means that it has an internet browser, it has your email, um, you know, your, your email client, your newsgroup client, a web feed reader, HTML editor, so if you're one of those people who just, you do not like to write your own uh, HTML code, you want like a something to help you with that. CMonkey actually has a pretty good sort of like HTML editor within it that, that you can use to kind of make that process a little bit easier. IRC chat, uh, web development tools, all kinds of little things that you would need for the internet. And it uses source code from Firefox and Thunderbird. Um, so it's, it's kind of adjacent, I guess, to a lot of what Mo Mozilla does. It is included on Slackware, which is probably why libidl is included. But but why is libidl? Why does it exist? Well, to understand why libidl exists, you need to know what Corba is. And in order to understand what Corba is, you need to know what Orb is. So Orb is the, or and Orbit, I think, is Object Request Broker. That's what that is, an Object Request Broker. What's that? Well, when an application written in one language wants to communicate with an application uh, with an application written in some other language they need to know where they can connect like what's available from one to the other this mapping is defined in an interface definition language file that's idl which again libidl so there you go that's the interface definition language um this is used by uh Corba, the uh, common object request broker architecture, to to enable different systems, systems that, that have been built, you know, differently from one another, uh, to essentially have the right um, ports and jacks to connect to one another, more or less. It's probably not a very good definition, and that's partly because I've never used it before. I'm, I'm speaking entirely uh, from sort of reverse engineering, otherwise known as reading the documentation. Uh, and honestly, one of the best documentations on this comes from Wikipedia. If you go to wikipedia.org, 
uh, and look for Corba or common underscore object underscore request underscore broker underscore architecture, then it's a surprisingly lucid explanation of what all of this stuff is and i and i i don't mean it's surprising because like i don't expect that from wikipedia i just this is a really sort of niche topic that libidl gnome's uh documentation about corba they they don't explain it i think as well as as this wikipedia page i don't know how i mean corba is kind of was was phased out from gnome as far as i know but i guess maybe some of the gtk stuff still kind of like uses it maybe i'm not sure why cmonkey is is still using this or maybe libidl is useful for stuff outside of corba or maybe something maybe the new corba is close enough I, I'm not sure. I don't know the status of this because I, I don't use it. But um, there you go. That's what it is. That's a horrible one to, to end on just because I feel a little bit fuzzy about what it even is. Like, I can't really picture it in my head. So let's talk about something that's a lot easier to, to picture. This is libidn, which I know doesn't really sound like it's going to be that great, but that's the Internationalized Domain Name Library. And you can almost kind of imagine what that is from its name, Internationalized Domain Names. So the internet, as you may or may not know, uses domain names. We use those domain names because they're easier to remember than IP addresses. But the kind of the problem is, people realized pretty early on, like I think back in 87, uh, pretty early on people realized, wait a minute, um, the internet is starting to be more than just uh, an inter, uh, like a cross-state, you know, something in the U.S. where the, the there was the, the government network and the university networks and eventually all those, and I think the military one, you know, they or maybe that's the government one, I don't know. But whatever, all those networks that sort of came together to form the, 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 the start of the internet and then started becoming more global and stuff like that at some point people realize well we it's not gonna it doesn't scale to have hard-coded all of our all of our domain names as ascii text because someone over in germany like matthias is going to want to use that funny looking b letter that the double s you know the capital b looking thing i forget the name of that that character and probably couldn't say it if i knew it um in their domain name or someone in greece is going to want to type in, you know, their natural, you know, the thing that their keyboard types in. So we needed a way to translate domain names that people are going to use natively, you know, in their own language. We needed something to translate that to ASCII so that the DNS servers could recognize it. What's the easiest way to do that outside of overhauling everything to use Unicode, like back in 1987 or whenever this thing was written. It was it was a lot earlier than than you than you might think. Like it, it happened this happened really early. I'm trying to find the the date that I that I saw. Um I'm not seeing it. But anyway, it, it happened earlier than you think it would have happened. So outside of like just yeah, making everyone yeah, no, nineteen eighty seven and then implemented in nineteen ninety. So the the easy way to do that was just to write a library that took the input of something that's not ASCII text and translate it to something that is ASCII text. And I mean, as far as I as far as I know, that doesn't have to be very complex. And I I, I could I, I have not I have not made a study of this, but for instance, in Esperanto, just 
script. This is this isn't a direct. This will bear with me. In Esperanto, you have certain letters that have um, macrons over them. I think they're macrons. Whatever those little lines are, I don't think those are macrons actually. Um, and one of the ways that people like if you don't know how to make a line over a letter or if or if there's an input system that doesn't accept that then there's a sh- there's a short a shortcut or a, a a variation that you can do such that you you just type the letter that you would normally put a line over and then the letter x right after it and everyone knows that when when there's a a normal when there's a letter followed by an x like that 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 means oh that's actually just putting a line over it now as unicode becomes more popular that that is i think less common and less necessary but it's something that that might still be used in mori for in, for instance in new zealand you, you, again you've got the letters over the rather you've got the lines over certain letters like the a and the e and the i and the o i think um and again if you don't have access to that a symbol or that the line symbol then when typing something that that normally would have a line over it some people just double the letter you wouldn't normally spell mori as m a a o r i for instance but if you were stuck with ascii text then that's a shorthand and everyone knows well you wouldn't see double letters like that in mori normally so you just sort of in your head translate that double letter to uh the that one a single letter with the line over it so and i think that's basically kind of what libidn does as well i mean not neither of those two examples are taken from libidn they're just things that i've encountered as i mess around with languages that i don't know um but the libidn i mean it doesn't have to do anything human friendly It it can be pretty strict it can stay pretty strictly tied to computing like it doesn't that's all it's used for, is for the translation of internationalized domain names to something that DNS can understand. And I don't know, maybe we're working on making this translation step unnecessary. I don't know the status of that. I think it would be nice. But, I mean, that Unicode conversion, man, boy, it's taken a while. And, um... Anyway, that's li- libidn. It's uh, it's it's just there. It just works. It's just it's doing its thing in the background. We don't have to think about it, and that's such a great thing. That's so cool. Um, and it's open source, and it's available for anything. So you know, like it doesn't. You just never have to think about it. And we'll stop there. Um, we're not through the eyes, but we we got pretty far along in the eyes. We we breezed past whatever we started in with G, I think. That's that's not bad. That's pretty that's pretty good. Uh, and we'll just keep going next episode. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive 
you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted. Until next time, thanks for listening, and keep the source open! to him, but I guess he didn't hear me. <laughs>